Welcome once again, dear listeners, to our 24th episode of the Nasty Pasty podcast. You know the drill. We cover films from the Video Nasty era, which in terms of the UK's Director of Public Prosecutions, covers almost every horror-related film from 1960 to 1990. Back in 1982 to 1984, the UK government, aided by populist newspapers, started a campaign to ban the sick filth that was the horror film, eventually rounding up 72 main titles to prosecute, and 82 titles to just seize from the shelves. But what of the others outside of these 154 forbidden fruits? This is where the Nasty Pasty podcast aims to fill in those gaps, exploring films from the same period that maybe should have been nasties themselves, but were either unreleased, otherwise unavailable, or already censored. Last week we talked about machine-related films, inspired by Blade Runner or The Terminator, that sort of thing. This week it's Body Horror Week and we've got two Freudian nightmares for you to set your gaze upon. It's David Cronenberg's Videodrome and James Muro's Street Trash. As is usual, let's just have a little recap about what body horror actually is before we start on these films. The main element of body horror, sometimes known as biological horror, is the fear or disgust evoked at seeing the human body graphically violated to some degree. This can include mutilation and dismemberment, for example, but it more frequently involves mutations, diseases, sexual reconfigurations, paraphilias, unnatural movements or unnatural features. A lot of these displays rely on our primal fear of something called the uncanny valley, which in a nutshell means we're instinctively afraid of something if it resembles a human being, but not exactly as we expect it to. There's a whole host of primal reasons why we're afraid of such creatures. For example, we're actually programmed to seek out compatible mates. Any semblance of non-human features in a human-looking creature automatically elicits mistrust and dislike. The same for anything that moves unnaturally or in a non-human way. Our fundamental feeling of human identity is threatened at the very core when confronted by such a being. It also plays on the idea that our body, too, can become out of control, mutilated or mutated when faced with another person who has suffered the said fate. One common recurring trait of body horrors, though, is not instant mutilation or transformation, as these tend to be kept for the more visceral thrills of a slasher or a splatter film. Instead, there's often a focus on slow degenerative distortions of the human body, usually caused by a disease in which the victim eventually loses control over their body and its changes. Although a term coined in the 80s for use with cinematic examples like Stuart Gordon's Reanimator, body horror has in fact existed for a very long time. Even Mary Shelley's Frankenstein has elements of body horror, as we're terrified of the prospect of an artificially created person who has life but bears disturbing subhumanoid features. Cinematically, body horror has been around for a while too, with multiple precursors such as the 1958 film The Fly, or even The Wasp Woman, and there's even modern examples too, such as the Human Centipede series. But with that out of the way, let's get on to our first film, which is 1983's Videodrome. Max Wren, a sleazy president of Channel 83, checks out an Asian producer's porn work entitled Samurai Dreams, but deems it too soft for his fellow co-workers' tastes, making it unlikely that he'll invest in it. Another colleague of his who deals in pirate stations, called Harlan, uncovers a mysterious signal from Malaysia that appears to show a violent sexualised murder of an Asian woman entitled Videodrome. After appearing on a TV show with a radio host called Nicky, Harlan discovers that the signal is actually coming from Pittsburgh rather than Malaysia, and shows constant new victims. After showing Nicky a pirate copy of Videodrome, she becomes turned on, and Max engages in sadomasochistic sex with her. She eventually expresses a desire to travel to Pittsburgh to audition for the show, due to her ever-increasing stimulation for pain. 
An associate of Max's called Masha tracks down the people behind Videodrome and tries to warn Max to leave it alone, explaining that the show is in fact snuff. When Max is undeterred, she offers the name Brian Oblivion and a location, the Cathode Ray Mission, where various homeless people are invited for shelter and endless TV binges. Meeting Brian's daughter Bianca, as he has not spoken publicly for years, Max mentions Videodrome and asks that he get in touch. Back at home, Max's assistant Bridie comes over and he hallucinates that he slaps her angrily and that a videotape she has brought from Oblivion is actually organic and pulsates. The video shows an almost sentient Oblivion who explains that television is a part of reality for those who watch it and therefore more real in the mind than reality itself. He then explains he was the first victim of Videodrome and is then suddenly killed inexplicably by Nikki. She beckons Max towards the TV, which begins to pulsate in a sexual fashion, and he buries his head in the absurdly unsolid screen. Bianca explains that it is not in fact the Videodrome imagery that causes these hallucinations, but the signal that broadcasts it, explaining the differences in Max's experiences. Oblivion survives only in the form of the videotapes of Videodrome, which he considered a new form of life, having died several years prior. In the tapes, he goes further explaining that the Videodrome signal causes a growth in the brain, which, like an organ, elicits bodily changes. As Max watches this, a vaginal-like slit opens up in his abdomen, only to suddenly disappear again. A man named Barry Convex then gets in touch, wanting to speak about the Videodrome show. At Spectacular Optical, where Convex is based, Max is told that he's the one who creates Videodrome and would like to record one of Max's hallucinations. Using a helmet-like contraption, hallucinations are engendered within Max, such as Nicky walking in and the room suddenly changing to the Videodrome room, with Max whipping Nicky who has turned into the pulsating TV. It eventually becomes Marsha before Max wakes up in his apartment with Masha's tied-up corpse. He asks Harlan to come over to photograph the body, only for Harlan to explain that there's actually nothing there. Harlan then reveals that he was planted by Convex to play the tapes specifically to Max. There was no pirate broadcast. Explaining their philosophy, they plan to use Videodrome as a way to murder undesirables, who wallow in TV filth by causing them intense hallucinations before they die of a tumour. The strange slit opens up again in Max's abdomen, which Convex shoves a VHS tape into. Descending further into madness and seemingly under the influence of the VHS tape, Max murders his TV co-workers and attempts to kill Bianca, only for her to reveal that Nicky is also dead, murdered long before she met him and used as a manifestation to seduce him. A TV itself morphs into a hand with a gun and fires upon Max, seemingly a ruse by Bianca to remove the VHS tape. She proclaims that Max should now destroy Videodrome with his new powers. Visiting Harlan, Max kills him when he tries to insert a new tape into him, chewing his hand off and replacing it with a bomb. He goes to a fundraiser where Convex is and dispatches him with the gun hand configuration on his arm. His corpse gorily disintegrates with a pulsating flesh-like substance as Max declares, Long live the new flesh. Hiding in an abandoned boat, Max encounters the TV Nicky again who explains that Videodrome is still not gone completely, and he must go on to the next phase to completely erase them. Explaining that he must kill the old flesh to become the new flesh, Max raises the gun to his head, exclaims, Long live the new flesh, and pulls the trigger. Max Wren. Your television station offers its viewers everything from softcore pornography to hardcore violence. Why? Well, it's a matter of economics, Rena. We're uh, small. In order to survive, we have to give people something they can't get anywhere else. And, uh, and we do that. But don't you feel such shows contribute to a social climate of violence and sexual malaise? And do you care? Certainly I care. <laughs> I care enough, in fact, to give my viewers uh, a, a harmless outlet for their, their fantasies and their frustrations. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a... Uh, socially positive act what about it Nikki is it socially positive well I think we live in overstimulated times we crave stimulation for its own sake we gorge ourselves on it we always want more whether it's tactile emotional or sexual and I think that's bad then why did you wear that dress sorry that dress 
It's very stimulating. And it's red. You know what Freud would have said about that dress. And he would have been right. I admit it. I live in a highly excited state of overstimulation. Listen, I'd really like to take you off to dinner tonight. You, you Professor really Oblivion, what do, you think? do you think erotic TV shows and violent TV shows lead to desensitization, to dehumanization? Is microphone? The television screen has become the retina of the mind's eye. Yes. That's why I refuse to appear on television, except on television. Of course, Oblivion is not the name I was born with. That's my television name. Soon, all of us will have special names. Names designed to cause the cathode ray tube to resonate. Yes. Nikki, is Max Ren a menace to society? I'm not sure. He's certainly a menace to me. Truly one of the most bizarre body horror films that exists, Videodrome is an exercise in social commentary, graphic body mutations, and a disorientating stance on reality. Director David Cronenberg was inspired by instances from his childhood, when his television would catch signals sometimes from New York after Canadian stations had finished their broadcast. He frequently thought that he would sometimes see something that he wasn't meant to watch, or something pirated that nobody knew about. Combined with his education from Marshall McLuhan at the University of Toronto, who famously coined the phrase, the medium is the message, Cronenberg decided to tackle the medium of television and the rapidly emerging new technology of home video. The film began shooting in October of 1981 and ended in December the same year. The first scenes to be filmed are the small clips that feature on television screens, such as Convex's introduction, Brian Oblivion's monologues, and also the Samurai Dreams film. Some elements of the film were patterned on real-life comparisons too, such as Barry Convex being inspired by televangelist Jim Backer, or Brian Oblivion being based on Cronenberg's mentor, Marshall McLuhan. Even the mentioned Civic TV is based on the real city TV station in Toronto, with a character named Moses, after the founder, and also a penchant for showing softcore pornography, also based on the real channel. Rather like our own Channel 4 in the UK, really. The film's major special effects, helmed by quite a large team, form the basis of the film's memorable imagery and the majority of the film's production, which actually went relatively smoothly and without a hitch. The only minor instance was when the film's gaffer, a man called Jock Brandis, informed the crew during the shooting of the cathode ray mission sequence that the building's power lines were emanating smoke because of the huge amount of TV sets that they'd set up. The impressive chest slit sequence was achieved with James Woods built into the couch, with the slit makeup glued onto his body, which he apparently found rather unpleasant. The VHS tapes used in these sections were actually Betamax tapes, as they were small enough to fit into the aperture, and obviously it was too time-consuming to accommodate the makeup for VHS tapes. The impressive effect of the Nikki TV combination was achieved using a video projector in a housing, which was then draped in a large dental dam. The image was projected onto the front of the screen to give the television illusion, which was then pulsated on cue to achieve the effect of the TV being organic. The helmet that Convex uses to record Max's hallucinations was a fully functioning electronic gadget, which made James Woods nervous as he felt vulnerable to electrocution. So in these scenes, Max is instead played by director David Cronenberg himself in a cameo. The effect of Max's gun being fused with his corrupted flesh was achieved with a simple prosthetic cover, which had mechanisms underneath it to release a cool vapour on cue. Woods jokingly had his hand painted a pale blue in order to prank Cronenberg that he'd actually contracted frostbite from the contraption. Not all of the special effects made it to the final edit, though. One such scene was Max emerging from his bathtub, integrated with his own TV set, which was displaying an image. Originally wanting to use non-conductive liquid, they eventually decided to just waterproof the TV from the inside. And the initial tests appeared quite positive, especially as the TV seemed to work while submerged quite safely, and it also floated due to the vacuum inside the tube. Unfortunately, though, the scene was cut from the script shortly before it was due to film. 
While the film ends with quite a suitably dark tone, it was actually just one of three potential endings that were considered. Cronenberg's original ending would have had an epilogue play after Max kills himself, which shows Max, Bianca and Nicky appear in the red room of Videodrome, all of them bearing the abdominal slits which have evolved to emerge grotesque sexual organs. Apart from the huge technical demands for such a special effect to be pulled off, James Woods actually had family commitments during the filming of the ending, whilst Deborah Harry was suffering from a stomach bug, so ultimately the scene was actually dropped. Cronenberg did consider another alternative, the details of which are unknown, until Woods himself suggested that the film should just end as soon as Max pulls the trigger, which of course became the film's default ending. The boat used in this final scene actually belonged to the gaffer that we previously mentioned, Jock Brandis. The soundtrack for Videodrome, done by the well-regarded Howard Shaw, who we'll get onto shortly, was specifically composed to elicit the descending madness of James Woods' character. The entire score was recorded orchestrally and also digitally using a synthesizer, the Synclavier II. As the film goes on, the subtle tones of the soundtrack become more and more digital, giving the impression that something artificial, the synthesizer sounds, are taking over the natural, the orchestral tones. In the middle of the film, it actually does become quite difficult to tell which sounds are digitised and which are actually musical instruments. This theme of the digital overtaking the natural is also seen in the film's official trailer, which was rendered entirely using a Commodore 64 computer. Cronenberg did have a knack for predicting future technologies and social changes. His debut film Shivers predicted the AIDS crisis in the 1980s, Rabid predicted the rise of commercialised plastic surgery, and Existence predicted a more virtual reality medium of video games. Videodrome is no less visionary. In the beginning TV interview, Oblivion is interviewed through a television screen, something that's quite, rather quite bizarre in 1983, but today Skype interviews and video calling is rather commonplace and quite banal. Even the theme of the interview, that sexy and violent films causing society to become deviant, was pretty much happening here in the UK in the form of the video nasties. This is a more poignant point later on when we discuss the film's release in the UK. But particular standout lines are Max referring to the Videodrome producers as the Mondo Guys, referring to the half-faked, half-real exploitation genre that we've actually covered before. He also explains to Nicky that films like Videodrome are shot in Brazil and South America, where people are killed for real, mirroring the conservative, alarmist viewpoints in the US and UK about films like Snuff, one of the nasties that had the tagline, Made in South America, where life is cheap. Personally, I loved the vibe of Videodrome right from the get-go. The images of snowy static TV blended with the CRT scan lines of the images really added that almost mythic look and feel of VHS films. Even some of the film's settings evoke this feeling of television. For example, Brian Oblivion's office is rather monochrome or at least sepia-toned, with occasional bursts of colour. And they reminds me, it reminds me a little of the RGB colour model system on old-style TVs. Max's apartment has this in even more obvious set design. His kitchen has a large poster of seemingly just static, whilst next to it there's a human face wreathed in a rainbow of colour. The clashing of fairly muted colour next to vivid colours is present throughout the whole picture. The cinematography too is incredible, with the standout moment for me being when Nicky and Max are having sex. The videodrome room seems to appear around them. The red clay-like walls and the rhythmic moans and breaths of Nicky rather likens the scene to a bit of a womb, symbolically birthing the pair into a new realm of experience. Even some of the narrative choices reinforce the themes of the film. For example, almost every major character appears on a television at some point, so the TV is virtually inescapable during the film's runtime. It's also notable that once Nicky leaves for Pittsburgh, she only reappears in the form of a sentient TV, lending credence to the idea that Max is slowly becoming obsessed with the TV, in a sexual way. Although the villainous plan is to eradicate undesirables using trashy television programmes, it is actually a little hard to swallow, as it seems straight from a truly mad mind. How on earth can you be stronger as a country if you eliminate half the populace, who just simply enjoy watching some blood and guts? Max was played by actor James Woods, quite a recognisable face in the acting world. He, of course, popped up in Once Upon a Time in America, The Getaway, Casino, and the remake of Straw Dogs. 
but he's also a frequent voice actor, such as playing Hades in Disney's Hercules and the Kingdom Hearts video game series. He was the villain in Final Fantasy The Spirits Within, and he also had a small role in Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. Woods plays Max with a suitable dislikable sliminess, and it's not hard to enjoy his suffering as he descends into madness that his own greed and ambition has earned him. Especially so, as Woods himself has a rather negative reputation, as someone who is not particularly pleasant in real life, particularly in recent years. The instantly recognisable Deborah Harry plays the seductive, mysterious Nikki, and Harry dyed her hair specifically red for the role. She is, of course, the lead singer of the band Blondie, with a crap ton of chart hits like Heart of Glass, and several decades' worth of soundtrack work on over 200 projects. She did pop up in the 1988 version of Hairspray, Tales from the Dark Side, and Copland as well. But I'm really surprised she didn't get further work on the screen. Her subtle performance is quite genuinely mesmerising. I really couldn't take my eyes off her. Peter Dvorsky, who plays Harlan, cropped up later in Cronenberg's The Dead Zone, as well as the comedy Twins with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. Uh, Leslie Carlson played the enigmatic Convex, presumably named so after the type of lens, again referring back to television, and he's been in two films that we've already covered on Nasty Pasty. He was in Deranged and also Black Christmas. He also joined Cronenberg on The Dead Zone and The Fly and appeared on the TV horrors Friday the 13th the series and The Twilight Zone. Brian Oblivion was played by Jack Crelly, who'd appeared in Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, as well as Police Academy 3 and 4. Julia Carner, who plays Max's assistant Bridie, she'd appear alongside Oliver Reed in Spasms, as well as an episode of The Twilight Zone. A notable cameo is by David Suboichi, who appears as the Asian pornographer who who attempts to sell Max the Samurai Dreams porn flick. He went on to become a minister in the provincial government of Ontario, and in true political bitterness, his appearance in Videodrome was exploited by the Ontario's opposition party to defame the guy. Similarly, I remember when Veronica Lario had a small role in Argento's Tenebrae, and she'd later gone to marry Silvio Berlusconi, the controversial Italian Prime Minister, who also tried to cover up her involvement for the same fear of political reprisal. Director David Cronenberg is a fine example of an auteur director. When he started his heavy science fiction horror films, no one else was really making them in quite the same way as him. He had his own dark-toned, intelligent and well-thought horrors, often using contemporary themes rather than supernatural or classic tropes. He debuted with Shivers, about parasites released into an apartment block, which caused destructive sexual behaviour in their hosts, and he followed this up with Rabid, about a botched plastic surgery causing a rabid mutation in the victim. After this, he released The Brood, Scanners, The Dead Zone, the well-known remake of The Fly, Dead Ringers, Crash, Existence, and many, many others. He's also made cameos in other horror pictures, like Clive Barker's Nightbreed and Jason X. Of these, Scanners and Rabid ended up being seized by the UK police under the Section 3 part of the Obscene Publications Act. Producers Pierre David, Claude Heroux and Victor Solnicki were frequent Cronenberg collaborators, working with him on The Brood, Scanners and Videodrome. They also collaborated sans Cronenberg on the video nasty Visiting Hours. David went solo on Scanners 2 and 3, and also Scanner Cop 1 and 2, the Wishmaster, and also The Dentist 1 and 2. Solnicki went on to produce the remake of Black Christmas, whilst other Videodome producer Larry Nesis worked on King Solomon's Treasure, Death Ship, My Bloody Valentine, and the Section 3 slasher film Happy Birthday to Me. Howard Shaw, the composer, started off his career on the video nasty I Miss You Hugs and Kisses, before composing David Cronenberg's film, who was a personal friend of his. After The Brood, Scanners, Videodrome, The Fly and Dead Ringers, he went on to her whole host of high-profile pictures like Big, Silence of the Lambs, Single White Female, Mrs Doubtfire, Philadelphia, Seven, Crash, Striptease, The Game, Copland, Existens, Analyze This, Dogma, The Cell, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, The Departed, Panic Room and even The Hobbit trilogy. Cinematographer Mark Irwin started honing his craft in stuff like Scanners, and also the video nasty Terrorize, which was released in the US as Night School. And he'd go on to The Dead Zone, Spasms, The Fly, the remake of The Blob, etc. 
He soon moved in, though, to non-horror films, and amongst other things, he worked on Dumb and Dumber, American Pie 2, Scary Movie 3, and Big Mama's House 2. Ronald Sanders did the editing, and he was a frequent Cronenberg crony, as it were, working on most of his works, as well as Firestarter and the animated movie Coraline. Assistant director Rocco Gismondo, he worked on Police Academy 1 and 3, as well as the 50 Cent movie Get Rich or Die Trying. The memorable special effects were done by an absolutely huge team, so do stay with me. First off is the incomparable Rick Baker, who's worked on almost every major film out there, such as The Exorcist, Gremlins 2, Squirm, which we covered before, Star Wars Episodes 4 and 5, Batman Forever, The Incredible Melting Man, Escape from L.A., Tron Legacy, Maleficent, and many, many more. He was assisted by Mark Shostrom, who first worked on the Section 3 nasty The Black Room, he then went on to Alien Predator, From Beyond, To All a Good Night, Slumber Party Massacre, The Mutilator, the first three Nightmare on Elm Street films, Evil Dead 2, Poltergeist 3, and Phantasm 2 and 3. Joining them was Bill Sturgeon. He worked on The Howling, American Werewolf in London, uh, Ghostbusters, Aliens, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, The Army of Darkness, and also Hocus Pocus. Kevin Brennan joined him on The Howling and The American Werewolf, and he went on himself to Return of the Living Dead 3 and the first Pirates of the Caribbean film. Steve Johnson also had a rather large filmography, such as Fright Night, The Abyss, Predator, The Species Films, Bicentennial Man, Spider-Man 2, The Fog, Pet Cemetery, The Howling Part 2, 4 and 6, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, Blade 2, The Cat in the Hat, many, many others. Others who joined them, though, were Frank C. Carrere, who worked on the Friday the 13th the series, and also the 1991 film Popcorn, whilst another guy, Robert Ruveroy, was a camera operator on Death Weekend, and also 1979's Meatballs. Tom Hester worked on Cocoon, Gremlins 2, I Am Legend, and was a character sculptor on the Shrek movies. Lastly, Sean McEnroe worked on Humanoids from the Deep, The Howling, Night of the Creeps, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, and The Blob Remake. Probably the biggest list of special effects guys that I've ever had to cover on here. The film was released in 1983 theatrically in Canada and the US, to quite positive reviews for its surreal, weird horror style, with artist Andy Warhol declaring it the clockwork orange of the 80s. Unfortunately, it did not seem to garner a massive commercial return, and was considered a little disappointing at the box office. It did receive theatrical release in the UK, but almost simultaneously CIC released the film on the 25th of January of 1983 on VHS. Now before we get into the specifics of that VHS release, we should probably just discuss the differing versions that circulated first. The US cinema version was R-rated, and it had some things notably missing, such as the shot of the dildo in the Samurai Dreams segment, some of the violence of the Videodrome images, the piercing of Nikki's ears, the TV executive being shot by Max, and Convex's graphic disintegration into mulch. The same R-rated cut was the version shown in UK cinemas. This version, released by CIC in 1983 on VHS, was a version longer than the cinema version, but still pre-cut by about three minutes. There also exists an extended TV version with around five minutes of extra footage for syndicated TV stations. After a few more cut releases on VHS, the film was finally passed uncut in 2002, and it now has a very special Arrow Films edition released on Blu-ray in 2015 that actually includes all of the TV version's additional scenes. Now, the VHS version released in 1983 by CIC was pre-edited before submission to the BBFC by about three minutes. By the time it was released in January 1983, the Video Nasties Panic was in the middle of its apex, and Videodrome actually soon became a personal target for the police. By February, the film was ranked very highly in film rentals, and it attracted the attention of constabularies in Greater Manchester, Nottinghamshire and Leicestershire, who began it to issue warnings to retailers to not stock the film. Citing an upcoming Section 3 prosecution on the title, the police used quite odd, heavy-handed tactics to ensure the public could not see the film by threatening potential retailers of seizures if they stocked the tape. Of course, many stockists were pressured then into dropping the title from their catalogues, but some persisted, and some were even raided for the title. 
The title was shown by the police to the DPP for his advice on whether a prosecution could be possible. And throughout the rest of February and most of March, video retailers were wary of stocking it due to the potential backlash they could get if charges were in fact going to be brought. But on March 29th, the DPP wrote to CIC that the version they distributed was in fact not obscene, and the police would take no further action against the title. In essence, however, the film was treated no better than one of the nasties that was eventually dropped from the official list, and was temporarily banned while the police considered a prosecution. This podcast is actually kind of dedicated to finding these unofficial nasties that suffered the same treatment but got none of the now cult glory. So that was Videodrome, one of my new favourites. Yes, I hadn't seen it before the show, and now I wondered why I really waited so long. But now let's get into another kettle of fish, Street Trash. your face, you little scumbag. Listen good. I'll tell you one thing, kid. You're gonna be sleeping with the fish, you little fuck. And this ain't no gag. So big mouth, what else could go wrong? A homeless guy called Fred causes chaos when he steals a beer, ending up disrupting a building on fire as well as causing a car accident. At a nearby bar, the barman Ed uncovers an old chest full of out-of-date spirits called Tenafly Viper, which is over 60 years old. Fred comes in and takes one for himself, only for it to be stolen by Paulie, one of his acquaintances. Paulie then sits on a toilet and drinks the brew, which quickly dissolves him into an effervescent gory mess, which gets flushed down the pan. Wendy, who works at a car yard, takes care of some of the homeless guys, to the ire of her boss, the horrendous Frank. Another homeless guy drinks the booze and melts away on a fire escape, sending a chunk of acidic fluid onto a passerby's face and attracting the attention of a police officer called Bill. Bronson, the leader of a pack of violent bums, has eyes on Wendy, who's giving out food to Fred, his younger brother Kevin, and another homeless man called Bert. After shoplifting a store, Bert recounts his knowledge of Bill, whilst Bronson has a violent nightmare where he imagines himself back in Vietnam, being attacked by vampiric Vietnamese civilians. Fred returns to the store where he got the viper, only to encounter a drunken wench. That's what she is credited as who mistakes him for her date and wants her to have sex with him. Returning to his makeshift home, they have a quickie, only for Bronson's gang to kidnap her and rape her. Frank the next day tries to do the same with Wendy, only for her to escape. Going out into the scrapyard, he comes across the wench, who's now dead, and has sex with her himself. Bronson, catching Fred as he's owed him money, suddenly gets urinated on. He chops the perpetrator's cock off and tosses it around with his buddies, who play catch with it. The dead girl's connected boyfriend puts a hit out on Fred, believing him to be the perpetrator, only for Bill the cop to intervene and prevent his killing by knocking the hitman out. Angry, Bill decides to take matters into his own hands and storms Bronson's camp, only to get killed and then urinated on. Fred returns to the store for another bottle of Viper, only to notice a fellow homeless person drink some before graphically exploding. As revenge on Wizzy, a homeless guy who's been causing him problems, he tricks him into drinking the stuff and melts graphically before his eyes. 
Ed, the guy who sells the Viper, also consumes the brew and dies in the street, as does Bronson's bit on the side, pushing Bronson over the edge. He violently attacks Wendy and Kevin, and murders a worker at the garage in pursuit of the latter. Wendy and Fred try to save him, but they're attacked themselves, leaving Kevin to reach a pressurised canister and set it off, heading for Bronson and destroying his upper trunk, killing him instantly. In the epilogue, the gangster's bellboy is about to be killed for his insolence, when he comes across a bottle of Viper, which melts him in front of his gangster friends. I'd like to know what you're doing with all that chicken in your pants. Say what? You heard me. Yeah, I heard you, but I don't understand. Because it's clear to me that what I'm doing is shopping. This lady said that you were taking food out of the display cases and stuffing it down your pants, and that certainly seems to be the case to me. Are you planning on paying for this food? No, I ain't planning to pay for it, because I already purchased it. This is all dog food on this list, and that's chicken coming out of your pants. Say, well, let me, let me see that. I don't see no dog food. That's what the abbreviation stands for. Oh, shit, that ain't my problem, bro. Can't help it if your cashiers see dog food for chicken. Look, why don't you come with me, and we'll get to the bottom of this situation. Come with you? What you mean? Now this old honky, skilled, ass motherfucker tells you something and you say, come with me. Now you taking her word over mine. Now that's discrimination. Now why don't you just pull down your pants so we can all see the lily white paint on your Haitian black ass? Look, either you come with me now or I'll get the security. Hey, now you're talking, bruh. I'm going to report you to your superiors. Fucking jelly-ass nigga take a senile granny bitch's word over mine. Yeah, well, we going to see what the Jim Brown's nigga this Vastly different in tone to Videodrome, Street Trash is more the opposite end of the scale of seriousness. Both self-aware and over-the-top, Street Trash is one of a so-called melt-movie, a body horror picture where the chief disgust on offer is seeing the human body degrade into a liquid mulch, or being attacked by a melting corrosive substance. The genre had been around before in the forms of The Incredible Melting Man or 1985's The Stuff. More examples after Street Trash emerged, such as Brian Yuzner's Society, Slime City, the remake of The Blob, the Australian film Body Melt, and even 1992's Brain Dead has some elements of melt movies. Street Trash, though, is a particularly silly and gratuitous entry, but a really fun one nonetheless. The film was based on a ten-minute short produced by director James Muro, which also starred Mike Lackey, the one who plays Fred. In the original short, the toxic drink was called Thunderbird, and caused significantly less devastation than we see in this film, but that's simply because it was only ten minutes long. An acquaintance of Muro's, Roy Frumkes, offered to write the script for Street Trash, with a desire to democratically offend every group on the planet. He certainly achieved that. We have almost every single offensive thing in this film. Misogyny, rape, necrophilia, gore, homophobia, full frontal nudity, racism, police brutality, corruption, transphobia, castration, the list is almost endless. Even bad language. The film has about 128 instances of the word fuck, for example. The shoot began in July of 1985 and it lasted roughly 13 weeks. Oddly enough, some scenes that were written in the script didn't make it into the final film. For example, a subplot that better introduces the connection between Fred and Bronson, and also a scene where the homeless living in the junkyard have a dance. They were shot, however, and were just removed from the film from pacing issues, but they are included on the documentary Meltdown Memoirs, a documentary on street trash that was produced by Roy Frumkes. The production team tried to get some products to officially sponsor the movie, but they were only successful in obtaining Drake's Cakes, who sent the box, a, who sent the crew a box of goodies every week during the shoot. There were a great number of leftovers towards the end of the shoot, so they engineered the effect of the fat bum exploding and filled the mechanism with the remaining Drake's Cakes. The supermarket sequence was shot in the middle of the night and cost a mere $500 to use for the film. 
Bronson's Vietnam hallucinations were one of the last scenes to be shot, while the scene at the beginning of the movie, in which Fred ransacks an apartment building whilst being chased, was actually filmed at Roy Frumkis' own apartment. Interestingly, the garbage disposal truck that Fred jumps into was also reused after filming to bring the cast to the theatrical opening of Street Trash. Some elements of the film were also improvised. Vic Noto, who plays uh, Bronson, improvised the sequence where he yells at a passing plane nearby, because the plane's noise kept interrupting the takes, and he suggested that they just make use of it to display Bronson's craziness. Michael Lackey, who plays main hobo Fred, also did the makeup, and he explicitly remembers making the fake penis that is tossed around. Three sizes were apparently made for different shots, ranging from small, medium, and then large. The crew even named them individually, the Pecker, the Poker, and the Packer. Vic Noto was cast as Bronson only a mere day before principal photography was about to begin, as the initial actor was fired after just one day on set. Noto did not even read the script until after filming had concluded, and he merely performed the film scene by scene. Bill Chappell, who played Bill, was a real NYPD officer before getting the role, whilst Miriam Zucker, the so-called drunken wench, was actually nervous about her scene in which the hobos kidnap her and sexually assault her, as she'd actually been on the receiving end of an attack herself in a subway station several years prior. It left her with a scar on her head and her ear partially damaged. There's some interesting cameos, though, in the film. Writer Frumkes plays the pedestrian who gets his face melted after a hobo disintegrates on a fire escape. Whilst future director and quite controversial person, Brian Singer, he was a production assistant and a grip in the film's crew. Compared to the previous film, the tone is immediately and starkly different, with a greater palette of colour and a heavier serving of cheese. The film generally does, though, have some heart and soul into it, and is clearly the work of talented filmmakers who are just clearly wanting to show you a good time. I was pretty surprised quite early on, though, by some full frontal nudity, and even more surprised when we got an Evil Dead reference during Paulie's death, where the camera just suddenly jerks about and then busts through a door. Bill, the cop, is quite unnaturally aggressive, as most cops in these films should be, but it does go to a comedic level, too. When an irritating pedestrian wants him to break the rules, and he refuses, she basically likens him to a rapist who wants to attack her, which engenders the response, I'm not even sure you don't have a cock. The supermarket scene is a particular standout for comedy, and the self-awareness is no more evident in the moment where Bert considers stealing a huge slice of watermelon, only to then decide against it. His tirade against the elderly shopper and the shop assistant was pure gold. I was actually in fits. The misogynistic aspect, like the rapey nature of some of the male characters, would be quite problematic in another film. I mean, Frank, who clearly doesn't understand the word no, or that a dead woman implicitly can't consent to being played with, is seemingly played for for laughs. The scenes certainly aren't malevolent, though. The film's just not that serious enough to consider them so. And tastefully, the film does avoid showing any explicitness when it comes to the necrophilia or the rape scene. I'd guess to keep the acceptability there. Having said that, the scenes afterwards are as equally tasteless. A cock's chopped off, and the surprisingly stoic victim chases after it after, as it's thrown around between his huge friends. Bill knocks out the would-be hitman, only to spitefully vomit over the top of him, whilst Bronson murders Bill, and then quite cheerfully pisses on the corpse. Fred drops his friend Bert into it, telling his would-be attacker, do what you like to Bert, he's black, no one will give a shit anyway. The decapitated Bronson's head even smirks when Wendy steps over it, having caught a glimpse of her undercarriage. All of these scenes are clearly geared to be offensive, but they're so silly in their depiction that you'd really be struggling to suppress the laughter. Even some of the non-comedy sections elicit laughs, such as the car crash at the beginning of the film, which nonsensically has no one at the wheel when it collides, and then inexplicably has a driver in the next shot. I was, however, rather surprised with Bronson. He is genuinely one of the most abhorrent villains I've ever seen in a long time. He has fantastic menace, he's quite believably psychotic and murderous, killing a police officer without a care in the world, and being generally abusive to everyone that he encounters. You do spend a lot of the film waiting just for his ultimate demise, and boy, we do get it. Sadly, the pacing of the film does leave a little bit to be desired. The film begins with a good dose of the graphic gore and action, but then dips for the majority of the middle portion of the film. 
It only really returns to the plot of the corrosive alcohol in the final 20 minutes or so, and it's quite noticeable how much of the gore quota that they've got to make up for. Having said that, the gore sequences, boasting an entire rainbow of blood colours, are genuinely worth waiting for. Especially impressive is Paulie's toilet death in which he flushes himself down the toilet bowl. The film does have that quite authentic charm, however, that more than makes up for the shortcomings. The film was clearly made by passionate filmmakers who were just simply having a riot, and they've given us a good time too. Fred was played by Mike Lackey, who wasn't really an actor of sorts, but a makeup artist, who devised the effects for Street Trash, and also I Was a Teenage Zombie. Vic Noto, who played the psycho Bronson, went on to have a role in Death Wish 3, and also TV roles in Law and Order, Boardwalk Empire, and Daredevil. The disgusting Frank was played by character actor Pat Ryan, who'd been in Carry On Girls, The Toxic Avenger, Invasion USA with Chuck Norris, um, Class of Newcomb High, and also Mannequin as well. The sarcastic doorman was played by James Lawrence, though I suspect that his lines were improvised, mainly because he sounds quite natural in insulting others. He's appeared in various bits and bobs, like Frankenhooker, uh, King of New York, Robocop 3, the TV programme Judging Amy, and the film Bridge of Spies. As mentioned before, the writer of the film, Roy Frumkers, appears as the injured pedestrian, but he also had a cameo appearance in Dawn of the Dead, as the zombie who first gets a pie shoved in his face. His mate in the film, who tells Bill of what happened, was played by Colin de Ruin, who was the set designer on this film, as well as countless others, like From Dust Till Dawn, Liar Liar, Species 2, 8mm, Scary Movie 2, House of a Thousand Corpses, and most recently, the TV show Supergirl. Also of note is Bruce Torbett, who played the unfortunate Paulie. He was actually a cinematographer, who worked on Basket Case, and also Brain Damage. The director, James Muro, was actually mainly a camera operator, but he had done some American TV programmes too. He has credits on Spookies, Brain Damage, Maniac Cop, Field of Dreams, Friday the 13th Part 8, uh, The Abyss, Beware Children at Play, Dances with Wolves, Predator 2, Terminator 2, LA Confidential, Titanic, uh, Red Dragon, X-Men 2, Rush Hour 3, etc, etc. Roy Frumkes, as mentioned before, wrote the film, but he also produced it as well. Frank F. Farrell, another producer on the film, appeared as a derelict in Street Trash, and he also did some work on the aforementioned Spookies. Cinematography was done by David Sperling, who'd performed the same role on no less than three video nasties. Forest of Fear, known in the US as Toxic Zombies, The Boogeyman, and also Revenge of the Boogeyman. The film's special effects were done by Mike Lackey, the star of Street Trash, as well as Jennifer Aspinall, and she'd worked on The Toxic Avenger, Spookies, the recent TV show Westworld, as well as Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. They were assisted by visual effects guy Scott Coulter, who'd worked on The Masks of Robot Holocaust, the visuals of Shocker, um, Class of Newcomb High, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, Friday Part 8... Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, The Faculty, etc, etc. But he's now gone on to the visual effects of sci-fi channel-type flicks like Shark Attack 2 or Crocodile 2. Matt Vogel, who's been mentioned when we covered Robot Holocaust, he also did the pyrotechnic effects on Street Trash. The assistant director Bob Hurry was also a visual effects guy who worked on Independence Day, Batman and Robin... Uh, Final Destination 2 and 3, Team America, fuck yeah, uh, Blade Trinity, Zathura, Get Smart, and also Jumper. Uh, the other assistant director was a guy called David Trippett, and he was mainly a production manager and also a producer on Wishmaster, the first three Leprechaun films, and finally Return of the Living Dead 3. The film did have a US release, and also a VHS release in the same year, 1987, but the theatrical version was quite limited in availability. Obviously, as this was after the nasty scare in the UK, and the fact that actually it didn't receive a cinema release over here, the 1987 VHS version released from Avatar was the first time that the UK was actually seeing the film. The BBFC did not take too kindly, however, to the castration sequence, and cut it down by six seconds. The film was released uncut in 2000, but the DVD quickly went out of print. It was restored by Arrow Video in 2010 with a two-disc special edition that contained the documentary Meltdown Memoirs, a featurette with Jane Arakawa, and 42nd Street Trash, The Making of the Melt, a booklet by Callum Waddell. 
the film was re-released again by 88 Films in 2016, with another bunch of similar special features and commentaries. The 2005 Synapse release in the US actually has collectible stickers of the Tenafly Viper alcohol label, and also James Muro's original 10-minute short of Street Trash for any aficionados of the film, which, after having seen it myself, I imagine that there are actually quite a lot of. And that's all from me from now, people. So as usual, I'm back next week with another devilish double dose of debauchery. We're back to the Nazi exploitation era next week with two examples of early Nazi movies. Unlike our previous episode, which had precursors of the genre, the next two films will be quite early entries after the genre was kick-started by Love Camp 7 in 1969. They are Tinto Brass's Salon Kitty and the notorious Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS. Now, I've not seen any of these, but I've heard of their reputations, especially of Ilsa, as she ended up having her own little series. As usual, if there's any fans out there, do get in touch with your thoughts or opinions on the films that I'm covering. I would love to hear from you. I need someone to talk to. I really do. Email stuff to nastypastypodcast at gmail.com, or you can hit me up on Twitter or Facebook. Just search for Nasty Pasty and I'm sure I'll pop up. Until next week, though, everyone take care, and I'll speak to you all soon. Ciao, peeps. (laughs) 